Well, uh, World War I began in 1914, as many of you history buffs know. Uh, and the kindling for that war was territorial disputes, ideological disputes. Uh, but the match that really started the fire was the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria by a Serbian zealot. And uh, that really got the war going. And after four years of fighting and somewhere estimated between 9 and 13 million people dead, uh, the war finally ended when Germany surrendered uh, on November 11th, 1918. And so the armies of all these nations agreed to put down their weapons while terms of peace were negotiated. And then the following June in 1919, well, the Treaty of Versailles was finally signed, uh, which formally ended the war. Now, the nations had laid down their weapons, but in reality, there was no peace at all because Germany resented what they perceived to be the very harsh terms of the treaty that were imposed against them. And then only a few years later, Hitler used the patriotism and the pride of the German people, and that combined with the economic and political instability that existed in the nation at the time, uh, to rise to power, promising them a new, great Germany like the days of old. And so World War II had begun only 20 years, or world, the, the treaty had been signed only 20 years ago, and now here we are, uh, 1939, uh, and World War II is already underway. Uh, and so in those intervening 20 years, though there was no gunfire, uh, most certainly neither was there peace. And so what we learn from this and many other uh, places in history is that uh, the absence of gunfire does not equate with peace, right? Peace means a whole lot more than just the absence of shooting at each other. And so that applies not only in international relationships, but it happens in your own households, right? Uh, sometimes, even in our relationships with our spouses, even though we're not yelling at each other, sometimes there's hostility, right? And so uh, these are things that have to be worked out so that we can have peace. So whether it's international relationships in your own household, in your own soul, uh, or with God, uh, what are the things that make for peace? And that's what we'll be talking about today. Our series, uh, uh, our Advent series title this season is uh, The Reasons Jesus Said He Came. And so we're looking at a different reason that Jesus said he came each week. And so this week the theme is peace. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, as he was approaching Jerusalem, uh, he saw the city and he wept over the city. And he said, if you had known this day, uh, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so what are these things that make for peace? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm trying to tie each week the theme of Advent to some specific reason that Jesus gave for why he came. So last week, the theme was hope, the hope of salvation that we all have uh, because of Jesus Christ. And we looked at Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And so he found Zacchaeus, saved Zacchaeus. And so faith in Jesus gives us this hope of salvation that we now have. Once we were lost, but now by God's grace, uh, we are found. And now this week, the theme is peace. And another reason that Jesus came uh, was in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he said, uh, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what we're going to see today in our passage is that the apostles, they got it all wrong. They did not understand the things that make for peace. They had self-serving attitudes. They were in it for themselves to see what they could get out of being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus had to show them how a disciple 
of Jesus can have peace in the world, and it's through modeling Christ-likeness. So let's talk about this concept of peace, right? This is a very broad-ranging word. Uh, the Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom, uh, and, and this has a bit broader range of meaning than our English word for peace has. Uh, shalom means peace, but also harmony, uh, wholeness, completeness, uh, contentedness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, all of these things are wrapped up in this concept of shalom. And so it can refer to peace with self, peace with others, even peace with God. In fact, uh, Jews even today use shalom as a greeting. Uh, hello and goodbye, they use the word shalom, uh, which means that they are wishing each other uh, all of this well-being, that they would have peace, tranquility, wholeness, completeness, uh, all of these things. Uh, it's a token of goodwill to say shalom uh, on hello and goodbye. So peace, uh, we all want it, but it's a very hard thing to come by, isn't it? I would guess that not too many of us sitting here uh, would say we are at complete peace with ourselves, in our relationships with all other people, and with God. Uh, it's a very hard thing to get a handle on, uh, peace with everyone. Uh, and so the reason for this is that we're all sinners, right? We're all selfish, we're all self-seeking, and that's why we end up in conflict with ourselves and with others. Uh, we're focused on our own needs and wants uh, many of the times when we put ourselves before other people. And that can cause inner turmoil within ourselves when we don't get what we want or what we need or most when we, what we, when we don't get what we think we deserve, right? That can really cause uh, problems. Uh, and so then when we have this internal conflict within ourselves, that causes conflict with other people too. Uh, because uh, let's say, for example, two employees are going for the same promotion and only one can get, them, get that promotion, right? That is a cause of conflict, a cause for, for perhaps backbiting, gossiping, slandering, trying to do what you can to get that promotion. And so uh, this ambition that we have uh, can cause lack of peace. And when you're talking about moving from just two people, it's just a question of scale now when you're talking about all the way up to world wars. Uh, you know, different ideologies, we want different land, we want different religions, we want different uh, philosophies to prevail, and so we fight with each other because we want what we want. And so there's always this potential for conflict. Now, in our passage today, we'll see James and John uh, jockeying for the best positions uh, in the kingdom for themselves. And so they're showing this lack of personal peace that they have, this lack of contentedness. They wanted more than what God had already provided, more than what Jesus had called them to. Uh, and their ambition led to conflict with the other 10 disciples. So thinking about this ambition uh, that James and John had, uh, just think about this. As Jesus and his apostles and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem, to the amazement and fear of most of the people who are with them, Jesus was walking out in front of them. Uh, Jesus had already announced two times that when he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be killed when he got there. And so the people uh, were amazed that he was walking out in front. And now the passage that we're going to read today, this is the third time now that Jesus has predicted his death in Jerusalem in Mark's gospel. So let's look at it in verses 33 to 40. Uh, it says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Now, the natural response you would have to that, of course, anybody would say, 
James and John, like they said, teacher, do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus said to them, or they say, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink and be baptized with the baptized with the cup I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So here's Jesus predicting for his, the third time I'm going, and this time with even greater detail, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit on, and then I'm going to be killed. Uh, we would certainly expect the disciples' next words to be something like, no, uh, may it never be, what can we do to stop this? Uh, but sadly, that's not the thing that they, says, that, that they say. So in context, uh, James and John's request is absolutely shocking, right, for them to ask uh, this thing for themselves in the wake of what Jesus had just said uh, is really quite shocking. And so what is going on in James and John's hearts? What is it that, that, is, that is making them uh, make this request? Now, Think about who James and John are, right? We know that they're the sons of Zebedee, right? So these are two of the people uh, who Jesus called. Out of only 12 in the entire world that Jesus had, he called these two. And if that weren't enough, uh, among the 12, he made these two part of his inner circle of three, including Peter. So now it's James, and it's John, and it's Peter. These are the inner three. And you would think that would be enough for them. But somehow it wasn't. Uh, in another passage, Jesus uh, called these two the sons of thunder. And so that might tell us a little something about their personalities, right? Uh, they're bold, they're brash, they're impulsive, they're ambitious. They're even vengeful at times, right? Asking Jesus, uh, shall we call down fire on these wicked Samaritans since they wouldn't uh, welcome us into uh, their village? And so that's the kind of people that they were, uh, bold and brash and impulsive. And so uh, what their request shows to sit on Jesus's right and left side shows that this ambition uh, that they have uh, so blinded them uh, that they missed Jesus's mission completely. They didn't understand Jesus's mission. And so uh, they, he predicted now three times what was going to happen in Jerusalem when uh, he got there. And still, they're still jockeying for the best positions. So a lesson for us is that our own ambition also can blind us to Jesus's mission. Our ambition can blind us to Jesus's mission. So we need to be on point, uh, aligned with what Jesus's mission is if we're going to be his disciples. And sometimes the great uh, reason for ambition uh, is simply dissatisfaction with God's provision. We don't like what God has provided. He hasn't provided enough. He hasn't provided it when we want it, uh, things like this. And so we want more and more. We're not content with what we have. And so we don't have this peace within ourselves, this contentedness uh, that we need. And our quest for more reveals this lack of peace. And when we don't get what we want, we may become disillusioned with God. We don't have this contentedness, uh, this wholeness, this shalom within ourselves. Uh, and so for James and John, it wasn't enough for them to be among the 12. It wasn't even enough for them to be among the three. They wanted to, to have the best two seats, and they were even willing to muscle Peter out, right? Uh, they had to give him the business because there are only two seats and three of them in the inner circle. So uh, they didn't have any problem squeezing Peter out of the best two seats. So Jesus has to do a work on their heart, right? He says to James and John, 
you don't understand what it is that you're asking. So it's not necessarily a rebuke. It's just uh, Jesus is pointing out, you don't understand the nature of my kingdom and the nature of my mission. Uh, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is spiritual. It's not physical. You're not going to get uh, to sit on the right and left hands of, uh, on my throne, my earthly throne in Jerusalem. Uh, this isn't going to come now. It's going to come later, uh, at a later date. And you're missing entirely the path to glory. The path to glory is not just bestowed because you asked. Uh, the path to glory and honor is through suffering and through service and through sacrifice. And so Jesus asked them to count the cost. Uh, could they drink the cup that he would drink? Well, could they undergo the baptism that he would undergo? They said they could. Well, they would, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what, what did Jesus mean by this cup and this baptism? You know, he's, he's not talking about sacraments here, right? We understand that. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about baptism, uh, Christian baptism. He's, he's using the cup and baptism as metaphors uh, for the suffering that he was about to undergo. So his cup and his baptism represent his death on the cross uh, that is not too far in the future. And so uh, Jesus' cup and his baptism are unique to Jesus, right? James and John would drink a cup, but it's a different cup because Jesus' cup and baptism were unique to all of mankind because Jesus is God. He's the only God who ever became man, lived a perfect life, uh, died for our sins, and so uh, that makes him qualified to be the one who atones for our sin. Uh, and that's the sacrifice that God demands. Uh, so on the cross, Jesus took the wrath for every sin that was ever committed, either in the past or in the future, and that brokered peace between God and man. And so Jesus had to suffer separation from God to do it. He had to take God's wrath on himself, and his death satisfied God's wrath. His death was redemptive in the sense that uh, it paid for our sins and satisfied God's wrath. And so there's no cup like the cup of God's wrath poured out on all sin ever committed for all eternity. And that's why Jesus could be the only one who could drink this cup. Now, James and John would drink their own cup. Uh, it would be a cup of suffering, to be sure, uh, but not the same cup as Jesus's. Now, we know from history what happened to James and John, right? Uh, Acts chapter 12 reports uh, what happened to James. Uh, Herod had him beheaded with the sword in AD 44. And that pleased the Jews greatly. They were very unhappy that James had been an apostle who was proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Herod decided he would seize Peter. He'd kill Peter the next day and get more acclaim and praise for himself. Uh, but it was then in Acts chapter 12 that uh, the angel rescued Peter from Herod's hands. And so he was spared. But James was not. James was the first apostle uh, to die. And John was the last apostle to die. He was exiled to the island of Patmos uh, because he wouldn't stop preaching the name of Jesus. And there uh, he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, tradition holds that he was released from Patmos after a while, moved to Ephesus, and there uh, died of old age. So we know what happened to James and to John. That was going to happen in the future. But for now, uh, there's a request on the table, right? There's a request. We want to sit at your right and left hands. And so what does Jesus do with that request? Well, he denies it flat out. He said, they would drink the cup, but the places of honor, these are not for me to give. Uh, they're given not on the basis of your desire or your ambition, but they're given on the basis of the sovereign will of God. He decides who sits at his right and his left. Jesus wanted James and John to stop thinking about glory 
and start thinking about service. That is the road to discipleship. And so uh, a, a disciple of Christ is going to suffer. Now, to their credit, James and John, they learned the lesson, right, that he taught, that Jesus taught not only here but in other passages, and we know that from how they went on and lived their lives and suffered and died uh, later on in life. Uh, but they didn't have these qualities of humility and self-sacrifice now. Uh, they would get those later. Uh, but these are lessons that we also have to learn. Uh, the Christian life is not a life of glory and honor. It's a life of service, self-sacrifice, and sometimes suffering. That's what a disciple of Christ does. And so we're going to have to recognize that the children of God will suffer, sacrifice, and serve. Now, after Jesus denied James and John's request, the other disciples got wind of the conversation, and that's when things really got spicy, right? Verses 41 to 44. <clears throat> when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So why do you think that these other 10 were indignant with James and John? You think it was because of some you know, moral altruism that existed within them, or that they were trying to defend Jesus from these two marauders who wanted to steal those two seats? No, it was because they wanted the two seats for themselves as well. That's why they were so upset. Uh, so Jesus, can you imagine, I mean, him just shaking his head uh, at this band of 12, his inner 12, who just heard him say the, for the third time, I'm going to Jerusalem to be mocked, spit on, and killed. Uh, and here they are fighting for the best seats uh, in his earthly cabinet. Uh, how foolish of them. Uh, not only did they not have peace within themselves, they wanted more, they had great ambition, but now this, this has uh, led to them not having peace with each other. There's open conflict now. And now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, can you imagine all that's on his mind as he's walking there and he's got to deal uh, with these immature squabbles of Christians uh, trying to uh, jockey for the best seats uh, in his kingdom? Well, Jesus used this opportunity as a teaching moment. He told them, don't aspire to power and authority uh, like the Gentiles do, right? The Gentiles are a different kind. You are not like the Gentiles. Uh, the Roman emperors demanded worship as though they were gods, right? And people who demanded or who derived their authority from Rome, like Pilate, like Herod, uh, used that opportunity to uh, dominate, to oppress, to crush their subjects. And so that's how the Gentiles ruled. Lordship, domination, oppression, exploitation. And when the disciples yearned for these positions, they were showing that they were not much different than the Gentiles. They were acting just like them. And that's not the model for peace with others. That's not the model uh, for service and servanthood that is the mark of greatness in the kingdom. And so the way to peace with each other, the way of greatness in the kingdom is through subordination and service, not oppression and domination, not the best seats in the kingdom. And that's why, as Christian disciples that you and I are, we shouldn't aspire to greatness or to wealth or fame or to power or authority or to honor and praise of men. We need to beware of these things. These are, these are things that Satan dangles in front of us to distract us from the mission that Jesus gives us, which is to serve, to serve his kingdom. So believers, 
we shouldn't look like the rest of the world. We, we let the world chase after material goods and status and honor and, and all those things. We have to remain humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want God to consider you great, you be a servant. That is what Jesus told them. So the word for servant is this Greek word diakonos. Uh, it means servant, somebody who voluntarily serves someone else. So we get our word deacon from that. So all of you deacons out there, you are diakonos, you are servants of this church and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even those of you who don't carry the title deacon, you all serve this church in some way. Uh, so we thank you for your service. That's what Jesus Christ asks of us. Uh, so be a servant. And then Jesus took it even a step further in verse 44. He said, uh, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Now, a slave is somebody who voluntarily, most times, uh, forfeits all of their rights, all of their power, all of their uh, abilities to live for themselves to serve others. Now, sometimes they did that for economic reasons. They'd gotten themselves into debt, and so they needed to serve another master, and they didn't have any life of their own anymore. No matter what their master said, no matter when he said it, they had to do it. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. We are servants and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' teaching is that a true disciple puts others first. Uh, and so with uh, talking about peace, we're just much less likely to have strife with others when our goal is to put other people first, right? If we're trying to you know, raise our nose above somebody else, well, that's when the strife comes. If we're willing to you know, push down on their shoulders to raise our heads higher, that's when strife comes. But if we're willing to say, no, you go first, you step up, uh, you become great, I'll become less, like John the Baptist said, that's when uh, we can have peace with ourselves and uh, with others. So if we resolve to serve others as a slave, forfeiting all of our rights for the benefit, for the good of others, we're gonna look a lot like Jesus. Uh, Jesus came uh, not to compete with others, not to lord his authority and his power over others, not to be admired by others. Uh, he turned all of that idea of human success, the things that we find so important, he turned that absolutely upside down. Don't use your authority to oppress, use it to serve, use it to sacrifice, uh, use it to teach others to do the same. You know, just before, Jesus gave the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. We all know, go and make disciples, right? We know those verses. But just before he said that, he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me. And what did Jesus do with that authority? Well, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's what uh, Jesus goes on to tell them now. Uh, he shows peace through submission and service. And Jesus settled the argument between these people just by this one verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's obvious that there is a contrast here, right? We have James and John and the apostles on the one hand, and their aspirations and their goals on the one hand, and then Jesus' model of sacrificial service on the other hand. The apostles are out for themselves to try and get what they want from being with Jesus. Jesus, as the creator of the universe, has the right to everything because it all belongs to him, right? And so rather than demanding his due, though, from them, uh, he offers himself uh, as a sacrifice and in service uh, to other people. So this term, son of man, that Jesus uses for himself, this was a favorite term of his, right? He, he called himself this many times. And it comes from Daniel 7, where it says that uh, one like a son of man would come with the clouds of heaven, 
And so Jesus used that term of himself uh, to fulfill prophecy, certainly. Uh, it's a claim to deity. Certainly uh, the, the Pharisees didn't miss that when Jesus uh, called himself the Son of Man and quoted Daniel 7.13 at his trial. But it's also a term uh, that shows his humanity, right? He is a Son of Man. He was born of Mary, and we're celebrating that at Christmas. And it's also a token of his humility. For, for God in the flesh to call himself Son of Man shows his humility, and that's what he's trying to teach his disciples. So the Son of Man came. Uh, before Jesus talked about why he came, he says that he came. The Son of Man came. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that, that Jesus, a God of the universe, left his heavenly throne, took on uh, the form of a human baby, and the one who created the universe would have to depend on human fleshly people uh, to, to clothe him, to feed him, to protect him, and to raise him. Uh, talk about humility, and that is just the beginning. Jesus poured out his life in service to others. He healed the sick, the blind, the lepers. He even raised the dead. He freed demon-possessed people from the power of the devil. He proclaimed the good news of the gospel wherever he went. And he, after he served the apostles and the others for three years, uh, then he offered himself as the ultimate act of sacrifice and service. He sacrificed himself for the sin of the world. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom means the price of release. This word was used for buying back slaves from captivity. You paid a price, it was called a ransom, and that freed the slaves. And that's what Jesus did for each one of us. We were all under Satan's grip. Uh, we were slaves to sin, slaves to the devil, on our way to hell, but Jesus paid our ransom. And the ransom that he paid for us is sufficient to pay for every single person who ever lived or ever will live. And all we need to do is to receive that precious gift that he offers in order to receive the benefits. So he paid the ransom. He came as a ransom for. That little preposition there is important. It's the Greek word anti. Uh, Mark is the only gospel writer who uses this word. This is the strongest preposition that he could use to uh, show that Jesus died in the place of or as our substitute. That's what this word means. It shows the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. He died in our place, and he died as a ransom for many. Uh, many can be confusing, right? What does that mean? Well, it's a Hebrew figure of speech. It doesn't mean he died for many, but not all. It means he died for all who are many. You get that? It's not that he died for many, but not all. He died for all who are many. So Jesus gave his life as a ransom for everyone. And so Jesus kind of does the mic drop thing, right? After this thing, he says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the end of the discussion. Uh, Jesus left no doubt about the purpose of his life. Like in his incarnation, uh, he subordinated himself uh, to the will of his father by becoming a man. And during his life, he subordinated himself to the needs of all the people around him, serving them. And then in his death, he paid the ransom that we could never pay, uh, the price that, that we owe to God for our sin. And by dying on our behalf, in our place, he gives us peace with God to all who will receive uh, the gospel message and will receive this gift of salvation. 
He came on Christmas Day. The purpose of his life was to serve and then to die a criminal's death at the hand of wicked sinners on Good Friday so we could have peace with God. How selfless can one be? And what should be our response? Well, I want us to notice this one little word uh, in Mark 10.45 that I haven't mentioned yet. The word is even. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a greater to lesser argument, right? If even God came in the flesh not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, well, what should the response of infinitely less creatures of the Creator be? Well, I would argue that it should be the same, right? If Jesus came and gave his life uh, and poured his life out in service to others, that should be our response as well. So uh, as we move into the application section, the first application should be fairly straightforward, right? And that is we need to model Jesus's life of service. Our goal is not to be served like we are professional athletes or Hollywood celebrities or billionaire corporate executives. Uh, our purpose should be the same as Jesus's. It should be to use our resources, our time, our talent, our money, whatever God has given us, our spiritual gifts, whatever he's given us to serve others and to serve the kingdom. Now, one reason that we don't do this oftentimes is out of fear, right? We only have so many resources, and if we go giving everything we have away, well, then there won't be enough for us to live. And I'm not even just talking about money. If we give away all our time or all our energy, we won't have the time or the energy we need to take care of ourselves. And so that can be a legitimate concern, but we have to recognize that if God calls us to do this work, he will equip us for this work. And so God will always replenish our tanks. He will always replenish what we have given away. And it shows when we really trust him uh, and we extend ourselves beyond what we think we can do, it's amazing how many times God will replenish, refill us, and we find that we are capable of giving much more than we uh, thought we could. And so uh, we shouldn't be afraid to give uh, of ourselves. Another reason why we, are, why, why we sometimes don't serve as we ought is because, let's just face it, we are selfish people. And you know, I'll raise my hand, I'm a selfish person. And there are times when I don't feel like serving, when I would prefer to take a nap or lay on the couch or just be alone and recharge my batteries. Uh, but one, t one thing that Jesus says is that uh, or he, he shows us is that you know, Jesus often went to be alone, right? In places where he would not be bothered. He could pray to the Father, recharge his batteries. And it seems like every time he did that, somebody found him, right? And said, Master, where have you been? You know, we, we need this, we need that, right? Uh, he never got that, that opportunity to, to really be alone for as long as he wanted to. And so we ought to have that same mindset as well. Uh, people will find us in our solitude uh, and we know just in ourselves that, that there are a lot of people who have needs out there. And so um, I guess for myself and for you, what I'm asking is think about ways that, that you can think more about other people's than, people than yourselves and perhaps uh, just step out a little bit more than, than we do during this Christmas season and try and figure out what we can do uh, to be more of a servant to God, uh, especially during this Christmas season. You know that Jesus is looking for committed disciples, right? He wants committed disciples. Jesus isn't looking for groupies. Do you know what a groupie is? 
groupies are people who follow rock stars around or other celebrities around trying to see what scraps fall off their table, right? Trying to see how they can benefit somehow from that association. Uh, and James and John were acting like groupies, and then the other 10 joined in. They were acting like groupies, trying to see what they could get from Jesus. But a, a committed disciple is someone who receives Christ as Lord and Savior and then, is, and then pours his life out to other people uh, in service to Jesus, making disciples and serving. So it's not what they can get, but what they can give. And that's the example that Jesus gave us to follow. So model Jesus' life of service. And second, have the peace that knowing Jesus gives. So to kind of end where we began, what are the things that make for peace? I say that peace is a top-down kind of thing, right? Uh, the first thing we need is peace with God. We have to have peace with God first. We get it when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And that changes us when we receive that because now our eternity is settled. We know where we're going, and so we'll be less concerned about any trouble we've ha we have or any inconvenience that we suffer uh, in the world. And God gives us his Holy Spirit, too, so we have all the things that we need for peace with God. And not only that, when we have peace with God, we have the tools to have peace with ourselves. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to suffer periods uh, of trouble from time to time, internal trouble. Uh, we may have seasons of anxiety, a grief, or even depression. About five, six years ago, I was dealing with a really, really bad case of anxiety and depression, and it was brutal. I wouldn't wish this on, on anybody, uh, ever, uh, what I was going through. Uh, and even then, though, while I definitely questioned God's plan for my life and what he was up to, uh, I never once questioned my salvation. And even in the darkest times, when you're in the pit, there is always the peace that you have of knowing that God has saved you, that Jesus died for your sins, and you know that where you're, go where you're going. And so you don't have that fear. So in seasons when we're unsettled, there's always that peace, the peace of our salvation, the peace that we have with God. Peace between nations, like after World War I, is always a tenuous thing. Peace between people is always a tenuous thing. It depends on how you've pleased them lately, right? Uh, but we can always have this peace with God. And it's a deep, abiding peace that is not uh, changing or fluctuating based on how we've been treated by somebody else or, or how we may be feeling about ourselves on a particular day. So once we have our peace with God settled, and once we have peace with ourselves, at least you know, working toward peace with ourselves, uh, then we're free to live a life that is pleasing to him. And that means a life of service to others. We can set aside our own ambition and desire because Jesus showed us how. He went to the cross in all humility. So this Christmas, know the things that make for peace. It's not stuff or status or sway or strength or supremacy. It's submission, it's suffering, and it's service to others. It's trusting Jesus for today and for eternity and then serving others like he did. So peace with God, peace with self, peace with others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen? Amen, Amen brothers and sisters.